Isaiah chapter 9, uh, the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, wrote these words, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's uh, pray this morning, shall we? Lord, as we uh, pause before your presence this morning and as we think about another gift of another day that you've given us, Lord, um, help us not to take that gift for granted. We know that uh, every day is a gift from you. Every breath that we take is a gift from you. And so we thank you for the privilege we have to come together, uh, to sing praises to you, uh, to refocus uh, our minds and hearts on the very reason for this season. And Lord, it's so easy to get caught up in uh, the commercialism, uh, the parties, the food, and the celebration. But Lord, help us and draw us back to, uh, to why we're here, uh, to celebrate the arrival of the Savior. He shall be called Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And so we thank you for that, and we celebrate that, and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is December 4th, which means three weeks today is uh, December 25th. Celebration of really the most significant event in human history After all, we date our calendar according to the birth of Jesus. We date B.C., before Christ, on this side of his birth, Anno Domino, that's the Latin for in the year of our Lord. So every time we say the date, every time we write a check, it references us back to 2,000 years ago and the arrival of Jesus. John the Apostle wrote these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then in verse 14, the Word became flesh and tabernacled with us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, full of grace and truth. And so this morning we're going to begin a Christmas series of messages. Uh, This morning we're going to look at some of the prophecies of the birth of Christ. There are over 300 prophecies about his first coming. There's lots more about his second coming as well. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the plan for his coming. Ephesians chapter 1. The birth of Christ was not a backup plan, was not a plan B. Jesus wasn't up in heaven and God in heaven saying, oh no, what are we going to do now because of Adam and Eve's choice long before the creation of the world? God came up with a plan, and it was to give his son. So we'll, we'll look at that. On the 18th, we'll look at the people involved in the Christmas story, the characters that God used to bring about the birth of the Savior. And then on Christmas Day, we'll have an 11 o'clock, a little later service, a Christmas Eve service, we'll look at the proclamation of his birth. 
uh, joy to the world, the Lord has come. So that's kind of where we're going to go over the next uh, few weeks. So let's think about the prophecies about Jesus' first coming. It is interesting that out of the, this book, about one quarter of the Bible is prophetic, talking about the future. Think about the book of Revelation, uh, 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. Chapter 4 through 22 are all about what? The future. Uh, the book of Daniel is heavily prophetic. And then there's the minor prophets and the major prophets. One quarter of the Bible has to do with prophecy. And so this morning, we're going to look at uh, some verses that are uh, prophesying about the coming of, of Jesus. Let me read Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. They're great, great verses about um, the, the prophecies of God. Here's Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I have made known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what's still to come. So God says, I've revealed to you what is going to happen. And in the Old Testament, we see many, many verses about the fact that the Messiah is going to come. And we're going to simply look at four prophecies of, uh, from the Old Testament about the, the Messiah. Uh, by way of introduction, let, let's just think about this for a little bit and uh, the prophecies. In 1957, Moody Press published a book by Peter Stoner called Science Speaks, an Evaluation of Christian Evidences. In the chapter, The Christ of Prophecy, Stoner looks at the probability. So some of you that are into math and think about uh, statistics and probabilities, the probabilities of just eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person. Now, we said there's 300 in the Old Testament about his first coming. But what are the probabilities of eight messianic prophecies all coming fulfilled in one person? And when they did that statistical probability, it is 10 to the 28th power. So that's a one with 28 zeros after it. I think it's called an octillion. In other words, it is highly, highly improbable that you could make eight prophecies from years ago, and they all come true in one person on the planet. So we're going to look at uh, some of them this morning, and uh, here's the first one. I call it the patriarchal prophecies, the patriarchal prophecies, and this has to do with the fact that the Old Testament says the Messiah will be a descendant of Abraham, Jesse, and David. It prophesies that years before he's coming, his arrival, that he will come from the seed of Abraham. That's found in Genesis chapter 12. And you remember that the story and the call of Abraham. He was from Ur of the Chaldees, and God called him to go to a place that he would eventually show him where it is. And the call of Abraham, God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And here we are thousands of years later talking about Father Abraham. In fact, there's a great kid's song, Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them and so are you. We've been grafted into, into um, the tree of Abraham. He says, 
I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, the whole world is going to be blessed through you, Abraham. Well, how would that happen? How could that be fulfilled? That's fulfilled because Jesus is a descendant of of Abraham. Later on in Scripture, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 Uh, The prophet Isaiah, again, 700 B.C., writes, A shoot will come up from uh, from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So not only will will Jesus come, the Messiah come from Abraham, but as they begin to narrow it down, uh, the Messiah is going to come from the family of Jesse. You remember Jesse? We've been studying the life of David. He had eight sons. He's from the tribe of Judah. That's why Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so Jesse has eight sons. And so Abraham, and now it comes to the family of Jesse. And remember of those eight sons, there was the youngest one, a young shepherd boy by the name of David. And David becomes king. And God promises him that a descendant from your lineage will rule on the earth forever. And that's going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes and takes the the throne and reigns in the millennial kingdom. And as the Messiah says, and he will reign uh, forever and ever and ever. And so we go to Matthew chapter 1 and we read the genealogy of Jesus. And Matthew 1, 1 says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so there's the patriarchal prophecy that the Messiah would come from Abraham, from the family of Jesse, and then from the lineage of David. There's a second, uh, maybe more familiar uh, prophecy about the birth of Christ, and it has to do with the place of his birth, the place of his birth. And this is a a much more familiar prophecy, uh, and here it is, Micah 5.2. Again, context about 700 years before Jesus was born. This is what the prophet Micah wrote. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old. He was preexistent from ancient times. Now, that's an amazing prophecy. That Micah, the prophet, 700 years before Jesus is born, says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, Ephratah. Now, the word Ephratah means fruitful, and that's added there because there were several Bethlehems in in that uh, time. And so he wanted to specify which one. Imagine in the year 12... 24. Someone got a time capsule, and they wrote down a a prediction, a prophecy, and they buried it, and then we found this written in 1224, and we open up this time capsule, and it says, um, in 1924, a future president of the United States is going to be born in Plains, Georgia. And 700 years later, uh, Jimmy Carter, he's now 98 years old, is born 
And from the little town of Plains, I looked it up, population 554, he becomes president of the United States. And you would say, that would be amazing if someone could do that. Well, that's what Micah did. (laughs) Of 700 years before the birth of Jesus, he says the Messiah is going to be born in the town of Bethlehem. And we sing about it, and I'm sure we'll sing this somewhere in our Christmas celebration Oh, little town of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was small. In fact, Manchester makes Bethlehem look big or small. I mean, Bethlehem makes Manchester look big, is what I'm trying to say. Um, Now, Bethlehem today is a big town, about 27,000 people. You can go go visit it. I think it's under Palestinian control. But back then, uh, the historians say that Bethlehem had a population of anywhere between 300 and 600 people. That is a really, really small town. And so 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Micah says the Messiah is going to be born in this little tiny town about six miles south of Jerusalem called Bethlehem. Now, what's amazing about this prophecy is that um, we see the hand of God uh, making all this come true. Because Mary and Joseph weren't from Bethlehem, were they? They they lived in Nazareth. It was 70 miles north of Bethlehem. And so some events had to take place to get Mary and Joseph from Nazareth, 70 miles north, down to Bethlehem for Jesus to be born. And here's where we are again reminded of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. That God is in control uh, of the details of our world, and history is really his story. And so we know how that took place, but let me just remind us this morning, and let's go ahead and read the passage, Luke chapter 2, of now God um, intervening in human history to bring to fulfillment the promise of Micah 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And so we read, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Uh, Verse 3, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and lineage of David. So everybody had to go back to their hometown, their original uh, town. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Ah, God began to move Uh, through Caesar Augustus, through a a ruler, a Roman-appointed ruler, to fulfill what? Uh, Scripture, to fulfill prophecy. I would imagine to Mary and Joseph, this would not be good news. I mean, Mary's almost nine months pregnant, and they find out they've got to make this trip from Bethlehem in the north through some difficult terrain or from Nazareth in the north through some difficult terrain to Bethlehem in the south. Seventy miles as the crow flies, but as they estimate the route that they would have took, they would have probably had to travel 90 miles uh, by foot, 
Perhaps Mary was riding a donkey. Uh, four to seven days of travel, and they're probably thinking, this is the worst possible time for us to take a trip. And yet when they look back, you see that it's God arranging in his sovereignty the very fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. Well, the amazing prophecy uh, that Micah says the Messiah is going to be born in the little town of Bethlehem. Well, let's look at two more this morning. Here's uh, the third one. Uh, First is the patriarchal prophecy, uh, the place of his birth. I call this one the procreation prophecy, the procreation prophecy. Here it is, a pregnancy unlike any other in human history. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 Another prophecy uh, by the prophet Isaiah. We read these very familiar words. Isaiah 7.14, he writes, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is the King Ahaz. It had a near fulfillment and a far-reaching fulfillment. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. You will call his name Emmanuel. God with us. It's another remarkable prophecy. That not only will the Messiah be born in Bethlehem, but the Messiah will be born through a young virgin. How is that possible? And that's the question that Mary asked when the angel gave her that news. How will this be? Since I don't know, man, I'm a virgin. And the angel told her that it would be of the Holy Spirit. Let me remind you, it is no problem for the God who spoke this world into existence to create a fertilized egg in Mary apart from human sperm. And that's what God did. God created uh, the Messiah, Jesus, in Mary's womb. And a virgin will give birth to the Messiah. Now, why is the virgin birth so important? It is extremely important. Let me just read one, what one commentator says. The virgin birth is important in that it preserves the truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man, yet without sin. The fancy theological term for that, they call that the hypostatic union. His physical body he received from Mary, but his eternal holy nature was his from eternity past. Joseph did not pass on his sinful nature to Jesus for the simple reason that Joseph was not the physical father of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus had no sin nature. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us. Every person born on the planet since Adam and Eve has been born with the sin nature. We, we, create, we inherit it from, from Adam. We're, uh, when David writes in, in Psalm uh, 39, his confession uh, psalm, I think it's 51, he says, in sin my mother conceived me. He's not saying I was conceived out of wedlock. He's saying I, I received a sinful nature. But God protected that through the Uh, through the virgin birth, and therefore only one person on the planet has ever been qualified 
to be a perfect sacrifice for our sin because God demands what? Perfection. God is holy. That's pictured through the Old Testament sacrificial system. Remember the the Passover? You're to get a lamb, and this lamb is to be one that is perfect, one that is without blemish, and it foreshadows the the Messiah, and uh, Jesus comes on the scene, and John the Baptist says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, let's look at one more uh, prophecy uh, about the the coming of the Messiah. The patriarchal prophecy is going to come from Abraham, Jesse, and David. The place of his birth, he's going to be born in uh, the little tiny town of Bethlehem. The procreation prophecy, the Messiah is going to arrive through the womb of a virgin. And now we're going to look at the protection prophecy, the protection prophecy. This is Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Again, written about 700 years before Christ's birth comes on the scene. Here's what the prophet Hosea writes in Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I have called my son. Out of Egypt I've called my son. Why would God say he's calling his son from Egypt? Well, it... It could be a picture of uh, the nation of Israel through which Jesus came. Remember, in the Old Testament, they spent, what, 400 years in Egypt. But its primary fulfillment is he's talking about Jesus. Because Joseph, Mary, and Jesus spent their early years not in Palestine, but they were in Egypt in fulfillment of this prophecy. So let's look at it um, and the historical a reference of, of this, and we see God's um, sovereign, protective hand. And uh, let's go to Matthew uh, chapter 2 uh, to remember uh, the story. So Jesus has been born, and the people are talking about that there's a, a king, a new king that's been born. And the religious and the political establishment are not happy. King Herod, who was not a very kind ruler and person, uh, is not happy that people are talking about this new king. And so we read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, when King Herod heard this, that there's a a king of the Jews that was born, and the, the Magi are looking for him, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him, the political religious establishment, is is disturbed about this news. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born, in Bethlehem in Judea. And then they quote the passage we just looked at, Matthew chapter, or Micah 5, 2, uh, that he would be born in Bethlehem. And it says, Herod called the Magi secretly, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. That was the furthest thing through Herod's mind. He didn't want to worship the Messiah. He didn't want to worship this newborn king. He wanted to kill him. And so the Magi go and they find and worship the baby Jesus, as we're all familiar with. And the rest of the story in verse 13, Matthew chapter 2, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. 
get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up and he took the child and his mother during the night and he left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And then it quotes the prophet Jeremiah. What a horrific time for a young baby boy that was born in Bethlehem around the time that Jesus was born. Because Herod's henchmen came in, and killed those baby boys, not only in Bethlehem, but in the surrounding area. But God's protective hand was over Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus. And while all that was going, they had already made the journey and they escaped to Egypt. It's interesting to think that Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus lived their first year or two as refugees. They lived as displaced people from from their hometown, from their homeland. And the first year, perhaps two years, were born in Egypt. And finally, uh, after King Herod is dead, uh, the message gets to Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus. It's safe now to go back, and they go back to, uh, to their hometown. Well, that was all prophesied through... Uh, the prophet Hosea, 700 years before Jesus was born, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Well, there's four prophecies out of um, the 300 prophecies that talk about the Messiah, and uh, they've all come true in the first coming of Jesus. So let's think about just some uh, life lessons, some application truths, and then we'll be done this morning. What can we learn from these prophecies? Here's the first one is this. The scriptures are trustworthy and reliable. God's word, this book, is trustworthy and reliable. In this culture in which we live, in which everybody defines their own truth, as what is true for them, the Bible says there's absolute truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 17, 17, thy word is truth. And so every word in this book is true, and every prophecy in this book either has been fulfilled or will be fulfilled. In fact, here is the description of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. We could say the the dotted I, the cross T, 
will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Every word is going to come true. Every prophecy is going to come true because this is the very word of God. Titus 1-2 says we have a God who cannot lie. And so in this post-truth culture in which we live, um, God's word stands and it is true and every word will come to fruition. Well, there's a second um, lesson I think that we can learn from these four prophecies. And it's this, that God is sovereign. We said the best definition of that, that means God is in control and his timing is perfect. Even when from our standpoint and what's happening in our lives doesn't seem like it. I mean, this is God's working behind the scenes and he worked through Caesar Augustus to get Joseph and Mary down uh, to Bethlehem. And uh, Galatians 4, 4 says, when the fullness of time was come at just the right perfect time in human history, what God sent forth his son. And that's not only true for the story of Jesus, but that's true for our lives as well. When life seems out of control, when disappointment and heartache and difficult things come, we need to be reminded that it may be a surprise to us, but it's not a surprise to God. And that God is a sovereign God who's in control. And that our disappointments are sometimes his appointments. As the John W. Peterson cantata from years ago says, so when you don't understand, when you can't trace his hand and understand what God is doing, trust his heart. Because God is wanting to accomplish something for our spiritual good and ultimately for his glory. And that was true for Mary and Joseph. I don't know if they were complainers, but I would have been complaining. I don't want to make this trip now. And yet it was God's plan. And it was God's perfect timing. And so oftentimes we just need to wait, don't we? Um, I remember a story about a... uh, Pastor, I forget which one it was, famous pastor, and he was in his office and he was uh, uh, pacing back and forth and someone came to him and said, what's, what's the matter? And he says, well, um, I'm in a hurry and God's not. You know? and, and that's true in our lives, isn't it, too? You know, we want it now. We want all the pain to go away. And yet um, God is sovereign. His timing is perfect. He is in control. Here's the third one and then we'll be done. Biblical prophecy gives us hope in the midst of a hopeless world. The biblical prophecy gives us hope in the midst of a hopeless world. So our hope is, um, is not in this world, is it? I mean, Jesus came and he came the first time to be our sin bearer and our savior and to make a way for us to go to heaven. And that's where our hope is. And if our hope, ultimate hope, is in the things of this world, possessions, people, anything else, we'll eventually be disappointed. But biblical prophecy gives us hope. Not only that Jesus came the first time, but Our hope is what? That he's coming again. 
You see, while there's hundreds of prophecies about his first coming, there's many, many more about his second coming. And so Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 13, the grace of God that appears offers salvation to all people while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the great of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so uh, where is our hope? It's not in this world. It's in Jesus who gave his life and paid for our sin debt. But ultimately, our ultimate hope is in the fact that Jesus is coming again. And the scriptures say that is our blessed hope. And so... Romans chapter 15, Paul concludes and begins to wrap up the book of Romans with this prayer after, after quoting some messianic prophecies that we just looked at. Verse 13 of Romans 15, Paul's prayer, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's my prayer for you and all of us this Christmas season. Yes, it's great to get gifts. It's great to celebrate. It's great to eat good food. It's great to get together with family. But ultimately, what gives us hope is that Jesus has come the first time to be our Savior. And he's coming again the second time. And for those of us that in this fallen world, find ourselves frequently standing at the graveside of friends and loved ones who have gone on. Paul reminds us, yes, we can grieve, but don't grieve like those who have no hope because Jesus is coming again. Let's, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your word that it's unlike any other book. Lord, that it's a book that is from your very heart. And it's an amazing book that when is researched and looked at with intellectual integrity and honesty, points to a Savior, points to the Messiah. And Lord, uh, we radiate with those words, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Thank you for the coming of Jesus. Thank you for these markers that you've given us in the Old Testament, that be a descendant of Abraham, that it be born in a virgin, by, uh, in Bethlehem by a virgin. And Lord, uh, we just uh, thank you for Jesus and all that he has done for us. May we enter into this Christmas season with joy, thanksgiving, and hope for all that you have done. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.